Dr. Graham Joseph Hill is a state leader for Baptist Mission Australia in Western Australia. He is a professor of world Christianity and mission studies and also the founding director of the Global Church Project. Graham is the author of 13 books, including Healing Our Broken Humanity. Today, he shares this book, which is co-written with me, and he covers topics such as reconciliation, justice, lament, and the vision of the Sermon on the Mount for a radical church and restored world, and so much more. Please stay tuned. Please join Homebird Christianity's six-week Lenten Exploration of American Saints online class, which begins February 27th. It is an asynchronous class, and the weekly streaming will take place on six consecutive Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, from February 27th to April 3rd. This class is hosted by Drs. Trip Fuller and Diana Butler-Bass. The class is free, but donations are most welcome please go to www.theonlygodordainedsurvey.com forward slash altars.com to sign up. You don't want to miss this important class. The 37th Pan-Autumn Annual Conference will be held in San Diego First United Methodist Church in California from March 16th to the 18th. The conference will open with a public panel Echo Justice Rising on March 16. Please do attend this important panel. Also, please support this amazing organization by going to www.panautumn.org and donate. Thank you. The Society for Pentecostal Studies welcomes you to their 2023 annual meeting at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, March 16 to the 18th. The annual meeting provides the opportunity for professionals involved in Pentecostalism to share knowledge and new directions in research and practice. Approximately 300 program sessions are convened during the three-day meeting held every spring to provide participation venues and networking outlets for Pentecostal educators and scholars. Please go to sps-usa.org to register for this upcoming annual meeting. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Hello, welcome to Madame Podcast. I'm so happy that you're with us. Today I have a very special guest, a friend of mine and a co-author, Reverend Dr. Graham Joseph Hill. He's a state leader for Baptist Mission Australia, which is in Western Australia. He is a professor of world Christianity and mission studies and the founding director of the Global Church Project. Graham's author's website is www.grahamjosephhill.com. Graham is the author of 13 books, including Healing Our Broken Humanity, published by InterVarsity Press and co-authored uh, with me. 
So I'm just so excited to have Graham with me today to talk about healing our broken humanity. But before we get into that, Graham, if you can just share what you've been doing. I, I visited Australia, I visited you and we did the book launch. And um, I haven't seen you for a few years. So just tell us what you've been doing. I know you've been very, very busy. I'm serving with uh, Baptist Mission Australia, which focuses on um, recruiting and developing people for local and global mission. And I'm also traveling around Asia doing some teaching. So teaching in the Philippines, in Indonesia, and other parts of Asia. Wow. So you're teaching about missions or... Um, what is the content of your teaching when you visit the different countries in Asia? Yeah, so I mainly teach in the areas of uh, mission, intercultural theology, and often teach a little bit on sort of pastoral and leadership studies as well. Wow, that is so exciting. I should have you come into my class via Zoom or something. That is so interesting. I didn't know. I see many of your pictures on social media and it's so great. And I see how beautiful Australia is. So hopefully I can come along with you one day or visit you again in Australia. Yes, for sure. It's a, it's a great place to live. Um, I really enjoyed uh, last time that you visited with Elizabeth. Um, it was a wonderful experience and for sure, you should come back again. I know, I would love to. So we have to make that plan or make it happen again because that was one of the most exciting trips of my life and to do it with Elizabeth and spend so much time with you and your family. That was just wonderful. And now that you moved out of, you were in Sydney before, right? That's right. Yeah. And I'm living in Perth, which is the other side of the country. I know, if so your I want to visit you in Perth. <laughs> <laughs> if your audience has trouble understanding me, this is, you know, the Australian accent, but this is the way that English will be spoken in heaven. Oh, so, in heaven, did you say? <laughs> Graham, you are so, you are so funny. We'll see. <laughs> I thought everyone was going to speak Korean in heaven. <laughs> well, it's very likely, yes. <laughs> anyway so thank you so much for sharing and I hope that um, I will be able to travel with you somewhere in Asia or visit you in Australia and I'm sure you're blessing so many people with your teaching on intercultural ministry and global missions and etc that's such an important topic today because mm -hmm. of you know this world you know a globalizing world and we can we meet people around the world so easily and so frequently. So thank you so much for your work uh, in doing that. Um, did you want to say a bit about the Global Church Project? Because somehow you got me involved too. Yes, for sure. So I think it was around about 2015 that I first felt inspired to explore what is God doing globally in a whole range of areas. And how does that shape our practices and imagination as the local and global church? Um, one of the experiences that really impacted me was I was speaking at a conference in the Philippines, in Manila, and I stayed in a backpacker's hostel uh, during that week. And during that week, I was woken up to the sound of somebody sobbing because I, I was staying in like a, a hostel and I got to know one of the participants of the, of the conference and he was a Vietnamese pastor. He was staying in the same hostel as me and he'd wake me up every morning 
with loud prayers and tears as he was sobbing before Christ, praying for the church in Vietnam. Now, he he planted that church about 30 years earlier and had grown from a handful of people to about 60,000 people. And I was so inspired by listening to his story, you know, a story of a church that had grown rapidly amidst incredible persecution and suffering in communist Vietnam. And one of the other things that struck me was, or that concerned me, was that all of the speakers at the conference looked like me, male, white, university-educated, Anglo-Saxon speakers. And I thought that's just a strange thing, isn't it? When most of the audience were from Asia, most of the audience were women, and all of them had stories to tell which were much more extraordinary and outstanding than mine. So I went home feeling very disturbed about that. And that was kind of the genesis of me saying, what would it mean for us just to really listen to the stories of the global church? What God is doing in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, amongst First Nations peoples, Oceania, the Caribbean, to listen deeply to those stories and let the Spirit of Christ inspire us to join with God and what God is doing in the world. Wow, that's a beautiful story. And thank you for sharing it. And thank you for starting the Global Church Project. Um, I know you've done many interviews, many videos and podcasts and uh, articles. Mm. And it's it's wonderful. So thank you for starting it and for getting me involved. Um, it's always good to do anything with you, Graham. So thank you so much for doing that. Mm, it's a great pleasure. Yeah, I... Uh, well, you know, as I began to speak with people, I felt deeply impacted by the idea that our vision for impacting and changing the world needs to be deeply embedded in our vision of who God is and who he's called us to be as his church. So if God is a just, reconciling, good, loving, embracing God, what does that mean for us as the church, as a just and loving and reconciling and hospitable and shalomic uh, people who are called to be salt and light and a city on a hill? So that, that whole kind of theology about who God is and how the nature of God shapes us to be a loving, embracing, hospitable, reconciling people really captured my imagination and sort of inspired me as I connected with you as we thought about writing this book. Yes. So thank you about that. So now we can get into the book. So Graham, for some reason, you don't have a copy of your own book, of our book. So I have my copy, Healing Our Broken Humanity. So I'm sure people are wondering, and every time I speak about it, uh, people do wonder, you know, how did a woman, a Korean American woman here, in North America uh, meet or collaborate with a book uh, from a man way uh, halfway across the world in Australia. <laughs> so if you could just um, tell the audience, the listeners, how we started uh, writing this or how we met. Yes, I, I felt really inspired to interview people who challenged me and, uh, and encouraged me in their writing. And, and you were one of those. So I, as I was traveling around the world, so over a period of six months, I think I visited every continent. I was on a plane 
every second day. And I spent a period of time in the United States uh, and, uh, and other parts of North America. And I thought, I'll spend some time with Grace Jisung Kim and interview her. So I arranged the time to interview you. And I think I interviewed you in a, in a um, hotel, I think it was a hotel area, um, and got to know you. And I think it all started, our friendship started from there. Our, our vision for writing this book started from that moment as well. Yeah, so it was, I think you were traveling the Northeast and, you know, we had a hard time setting on a date and I think I was going to be doing something at Princeton's Theological Seminary. Either mm -hmm. I was speaking or in some meeting and you were nearby. So I think we interviewed in the hotel lobby or somewhere in the hotel and uh, we just got talking a lot even after the interview and then oh yeah when you left yeah when you left to go mm. back home you we were wondering what can we collaborate on next mm. and yeah so then we decided to write the book so I think that's how it began but anyway memories do fade over time because that was so many years ago that was probably six or seven years ago it was um, that's right yeah, yeah or even maybe longer I can't remember when you exactly mm. came <laughs> mm, that's right Actually, that's true because I was I was in Princeton. I was interviewing Laman Senna, and uh -huh. I got a chance to interview you as well. And just felt so inspired by the theology you were you were writing in your wonderful book. And um, and we stayed in contact, and it's been wonderful writing with you. Um, I, I think it's a number of times people have said, "What's it like writing with somebody?" And how does your friendship survive when you are collaborating so closely, but you also at times kind of see various themes quite differently. And I'm pleased to say that I think our friendship, our friendship didn't just survive, it, it deepened and it thrived. And uh, now you're one of my best friends in the world. So it's been oh, wonderful. Yeah, it, it, so thank you, Graham. It's funny because when I was doing my PhD, my, uh, my, I had two advisors and one of them uh, co-wrote a book with his wife. And, you know, you're just a young student. You don't know anything about writing, but it sounded so excellent. And I said, wow. I said, that's so amazing to write a book with your wife. I said, wow, I would love to do that. And he he responded by saying, you know, Grace, I'm just lucky to be still married to her. <laughs> yeah. You know, it could be a disastrous experience. I've yes. had so many people who co-write and then they're enemies because they couldn't decide on, you know, agree on the content and agree on punctuation, agree on some of the chapters. Because it, it, it is, you know, you're giving birth to something mm. and people can get really upset or picky and then they just don't want to become friends anymore. But you, you know, we've been great friends and, you know, the one other book that I co-wrote, Susan Shaw, so I had her on Madang. So you're my second kind of co-author <laughs> guest. And it's so great. I don't know why I didn't have you earlier, but, you know, our book is suddenly doing so well. So uh, I don't know if you wonder why or why it's doing so well, if you have any insights. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the geniuses of the book um, is... The, the, you know, that we are so different in so many ways. We come out of different theological traditions. Um, 
Uh, you're Asian-American, Asian I'm a white Australian. Australian culture is very different than North American culture in so many ways. Um, you know, there's so many differences between us and I think that makes the book and the stories we tell and the way in which we engage in the themes so much more rich and um, and brings a whole range of different perspectives to those themes. Um, and ends up being a, a the book in, in many ways is a, is a conversation and a product of our own friendship and mutual exploration of what God is doing in the world. I think one of the reasons why the book might be doing so well at the moment is that we are living in a time post-COVID and living in a time uh, where there is rapid global uh, change and also significant polarisation and conflict within Western societies and other societies. And our book deals with issues of justice and hospitality and reconciliation and peacemaking and discovering life together. These are all crucial areas in a world that is broken and hurting and conflicted. Um, so I think it's that the topics we are dealing with are so important today. You know, I look at the Australian context and I think it's probably similar in many ways to the, the issues that we're facing are very similar to the issues that you're facing in the US where minoritized groups are suffering, First Nations and Indigenous peoples are suffering, the planet is suffering. You know, as I think it's, um, um, I think it, liberation theologians often talk about the earth cries out and humanity cry out together. The poor, the cry of the poor, the cry of the earth, the cry of marginalised people are one cry. And I think our book deals with what does it mean to bring healing into that broken, into those broken spaces? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think you've just nailed it right on. And recently I spoke at Campbell University and I spoke to the undergrad students, which I don't have that much opportunity. I usually speak in seminary or some ministerial setting. Uh, but someone traveled from afar to come listen. And he was telling me after the lecture that, you know, this, he, your book is even more um, important now than it was when it first came out because it's really hitting on these topics as you had just mentioned too and people are coming to understand that you know we need to kind of work towards some healing because there is so much brokenness in all aspects of our life and I remember you know as every publisher they give different cover topics and I remember one of them was like a band-aid and you and I both didn't like that cover because you know we're not dealing with something where you can just put a band-aid on and just mm -hmm. let it go and forget about it this is really kind of actively working towards healing something so because you don't have the book in front of you you probably don't remember the 10 practices do you oh i do remember them yes oh, you do? yeah do you want, yeah do you want me to list them <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I've got, a, I've got quite a good memory for these kinds of things. Oh, um, okay, because if uh, I don't yes, have it in front of right. me, I don't remember things. And they all start with R, which um, makes it easier. And it's probably a sign that each of them come from God. It can't be coincidental that they all start with R, can it? So <laughs> um, it's um, reimagine church, re renew lament, repent together, relinquish power, restore justice, reactivate hospitality, 
I think it's renew agency, reconcile relationships, um, restore or recover life together. And then a final one that I often talk about is sort of revitalize church and mission. So if I didn't get them quite right, I got pretty close to them, I hope. I think you're pretty close to it, yes. So that's amazing because I, I need my book in front of me. So I have it. So I think the last one you changed, maybe it was uh, reactive hospitality, but I think you said um, something else. But anyway, yes, yes. yeah, they're all ours. And for me, I have a hard time remembering, but you just did so well. So yeah, these are kind of important. So I'll just re um, reiterate them again. Reimagine church, renew lament, renew, uh, repent together, relinquish power, restore justice, reactivate hospitality, reinforce agency, reconcile uh, relationships and recover life together. So they're all the letter R and we wrote it in 10 different chapters. And uh, why did we break it up like this? Do you remember? One of the things that we felt was important was to focus on practices. Um, because we know that practices shape lives, they shape communities, and they impact the world. There's a deep connection between our social imagination, our theological ideas, and the practices we're engaged in. And in the book, I think in the opening chapters, we talk about the fact that you know, I used to be a swimmer and we would get up, I'd get up every morning at, you know, four in the morning and I'd go down the pool and train for a couple of hours every morning um, to be able to swim a competitive level. And, you know, it's that those daily engaging in practices that, that shaped who I was as a competitor in terms of my personal discipline it's a lifestyle of practices that becomes all-encompassing. And in the book, you share also about your daughter, who's a dancer, and how practices have shaped her lives. But we also know that Hal Vass and a lot of other writers talk about the fact that, that there's a lot of talk about, you know, shaping the mind and shaping the heart. But a lot of what shapes us as people, our minds, our hearts, our imaginations, a lot of what shapes us as communities is actually the practices that we engage in. And so we thought, what are those practices? And we came up with these uh, these 10 practices in the book. Yeah, and then we had um, questions after each one because we wanted to make it a book that you can uh, read together or by yourself and to really yes. engage in the practice. It's not just mm. a theoretical book. Um, there's enough mm. of those books around, but it really is how you practice these things. So out of the 10, you were mentioning earlier that there was one that you kind of share a lot in your talk. So which one was that one? And if you want to share why? Yes. And one of the other things that we did too was also at the end of every chapter, talk about particular practices that small groups can do together to embody or live out this practice. Because we thought we, thought we can't just have small groups only discussing the practices we need to give them tips for how to go about doing these practices in their local neighborhood i'm giving people small um examples of baby steps into living out these practices but the practice that i end up talking about a lot and be interesting uh, grace knowing whether this is true in the us as well is renewing lament oh. i yeah, I grew up in evangelicalism and Australian evangelicalism, possibly like 
North American evangelicalism tends to be quite triumphalistic. You know, we talk about overcoming, we talk about victory, we talk about success and achieving, but we rarely take time to grieve and mourn and lament. So lament actually is one that I end up talking about a lot. I, I wonder, is that true in the US as well, Grace? Graham, that is so interesting because almost every time I've spoken about the book, because I can't cover all 10, there's not enough time, uh, so I have to pick and choose, but I always include lament. So it's so interesting mm. that you focus on lament, and so <laughs> do I. I. I find that so fascinating. Yeah. I just did that recently in the last few talks myself to really focus on lament. And I think yeah. it's so important here in the U.S. when we have um, you know, Black Lives Matter and Black men are being murdered on the streets by those who are supposed to protect them and other mm. atrocities, um, you know, with the pandemic that's, you know, we're at the tail end, but during the pandemic, when there were hate crimes um, targeted towards people who look like me, and, you know, there are other hate crimes because of one's gender identity or ethnicity, um, their sexuality. So the lament for me has been a big focal point uh, wherever mm. I hear it, and people appreciate it so much. So I find it yeah. fascinating that you focus on lament mm. too. Yeah. I mean, the, the four issues that are very big in the sort of public imagination in Australia, um, I think inspire people to consider what does lament and change look like. The first one is environmental destruction. We, in Australia, we're, we're, we're seeing the effect of really significant environmental degradation and destruction in some of our what you know like the great barrier reef and other other areas our treatment of first nations and indigenous peoples has been horrific and we continue to kind of see the effects that's had um the way in which the church has abused and neglected and mistreated vulnerable people and children has been highlighted in the public imagination we've had a thing called the royal commission which looked at the way in which vulnerable people and children have been abused historically by the church in Australia over generations. And then the fourth thing is our treatment of asylum seekers. Oh, we don't talk about undocumented migrants here. We talk about um, asylum seekers and refugees. And what Australia has done is, is closed its borders to refugees and has actually put refugees on offshore detention camps in islands away from the man, mainland so that the Australian population can't see their mistreatment. So when you look at all those things, the Australian society is very conscious about the way in which we've abused the vulnerable, the poor, the you know, migrants, Indigenous and First Nations peoples and the earth. And the church and society are now asking, what does it mean to, mean to move from triumphalism to lament and to mourning for these injustices. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing your context there too, because people in North America, you know, we may not be well aware of what's happening in the rest of the world and especially Australia. So thank you. Mm -hmm. I know when we're writing, you know, there's always a chapter that's so difficult to write. I don't know what is, was there a specific chapter that you had a hard time kind of focusing and um, 
writing on? Oh, that's a good question. What, what was the one that I... Um, probably for me, the one that caused me the most challenge was about restoring justice. And the reason for that is because I'm a white, male, university-educated, heterosexual, English-speaking person. Um, <laughs> you have all the privilege. <laughs> I have all the privilege in the world. So um, that's where I really leaned into our relationship and into your insights, Grace, because it's difficult to write on this topic when you come from so much privilege. Um, and I became increasingly aware of how complicit I was in the injustices in the world and how much I needed to repent of my own um, complicity, my involvement in injustices, even my own racism. Um, so that was the one that probably was the most difficult for me, Grace, personally. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that. I know, you know, in North America, many of the churches are dwindling. The membership, the resources, the finance, uh, you know, people just, you know, wherever I go to speak and meet people, you know, their children or their grandchildren are not going to church. And this may be happening in other parts of the world, like maybe in Australia. So we have a chapter at the beginning about renewing church. So for those people who feel like, you know, the churches are dying, it is uh, spiritual, but not religious. You know, these young people who don't need the church anymore, why, why bother getting up? And especially after the pandemic, when things were online, people are so comfortable just sleeping in and just resting at home on Sunday. Mm. How are we to renew the church? Yes, and we're facing the same phenomena here in Australia, the the fastest growing um, block in Australia is the is those who claim to not have any religion. Um, in in fact, Australia is probably a more secularized society than than the United States. We, we would estimate that something like eight percent of Australians are regular churchgoers. Wow. Probably eight percent. Um, Probably 50% of Australians would claim to have some kind of affinity with Christianity. But these days, somewhere between 5 and 8% of, of Australians would go to church regularly. And by regularly, what I mean is once a month. So we, we are a very secular society. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> I and, thought you were going to say once a week. <laughs> no, once a month uh, in our context uh, is considered regular. So, you know, this is a very secular, very pluralistic, multi-ethnic and uh, multi-religious society, very much like uh, North America uh, and the United States. I think there has been some real concern amongst churches about the decline in Christianity in our, in our culture, um, some panic, and that panic can kind of lead us in two directions. So the first direction is to kind of pull up the drawbridge, you know, try to kind of say, well, we're going to stand against a secularizing and a culture. When we see changes happening in areas of, say, gender and sexuality, 
or culture or concern for justice or First Nations peoples. One of the impulses of the church when it's in decline like this or when it feels threatened is to kind of be reactionary and to kind of position itself over and against the world. The other, I think, more life-giving and renewing posture is to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to ask, what does it mean to, to repent, to lament, and to embrace a open, hospitable, listening and learning posture in the world so that we can actually join with God and join with others in renewal and healing and reconciliation so that where we see justice happening, where we see relationships being restored, where we see the environment being healed, where we see First Nations and Indigenous peoples taking the lead, whenever we see these things happening in the world, we see the presence of God and we join with God in those places instead of being threatened. And I think that's, that's an exciting thing. Personally, I'm not threatened by the decline in the church. In fact, I think God's people are always at their best when the church is in the, uh, on the margins. When the church moves from privilege to plurality, from the centre to the margins, from the majority to the minority, from dominance to um, humility, when the church embraces a completely different posture, I think the church is at its best. So I'm not, I'm not scared at all by these changes that are going on. And I think within these changes are the seeds of renewal, a fresh, just, reconciled, hope-filled church that is salt and light in the world. Thank you so much. Um, you know, with the church decline, when you were saying that Australians are a-religious, is that more atheist or just? Uh, probably a bit like um, the North American experience, spiritual but not religious. Okay. All right. So mm. thank you for clarifying that. Uh, one of the fun chapters that I had uh, writing, at least for me, was kind of renewing hospitality um, I think that's an important thing for many of us um, in this world where we experience so much loneliness. People are uh, by themselves. And even if there are people among them, they feel lonely. So mm. do you remember how we kind of came up with the hospitality from our book within the book and why that is so important for us when we're working towards healing our broken humanity? Oh, I, I think there's a growing consciousness that during periods of crises like pandemics, um, significant injustices, um, you know, natural disasters like we've like we've seen recently in Turkey and Syria, during these periods of crises, what we notice is that the world can be a very isolated, lonely place, but it can also be a place that speaks to our connectedness and relationality. And I think the pandemic has reminded us that 
many people are lonely and isolated and we are a very fractured society. But it also reminded us that all over our, our nations, whether it be Australia or North America, there are people, there are, there are healthcare workers, there are counsellors and psychologists, there are other frontline workers who are working deeply with people in very relational ways because we are a very relational people. So I think one of the things that's happened, say, during the COVID period is that we've been reminded that one of the gifts that the church can give to the world is to open its, its hearts and lives and borders and homes and families and churches to embrace rather than to exclude the other. Yeah, and sometimes it's so hard to do, but I'm hoping that those who are searching and do stumble on our book, that that chapter will be helpful in this world that's full of loneliness and isolation. So mm. thank you for sharing that. Um, the last chapter in the book, because uh, we can't cover all of the um, topics, I kind of wanted to touch on Recover Life together. And you kind mm. of mentioned it now um, mm. with the other, the hospitality. But did you want to say more about um, Recovering Life together? That was the final yeah. chapter. Oh, that's one of my favorite chapters, actually, because I I used to read the Sermon of the Mount in uh, in Matthew in very kind of Western individualistic ways. So I often used to read it as a kind of um, statement about what it meant to live a good life, an ethical life individually. And like a lot of people who read, read, read the Sermon on the Mount, I thought, how on earth can anybody live up to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's um, Philip Yancey who talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, we see ultimate demands, but also ultimate grace. You know, there's, there's significant demands on our life, but also this idea that we must live in grace and push into the power of God in order to be able to live in this way. So I used to read the Sermon on the Mount in very individualistic ways. But then I had a bit of a, a sort of a personal epiphany that the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be read that way, that I'm reading it like a, a Westerner. The Sermon on the Mount is a kind of a statement about a new, transformed, radical, activistic, healing community in the world. It's kind of a, a public mission or vision statement it's Jesus' description of, of what his people need to be like. It's a vision of a transformed, ethical, radical people who embrace not a tame or domestic God or gospel. It's a, it's a, it's a vision statement of a kind of weird, untamed, unpredictable people who live a transformed life in the world that speaks to the world of a different kingdom, of a different community of creation. And when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you get a sense of the kind of community that Jesus envisions in, in their life together. He, he says, you know, bl you know, blessed are you who mourn. 
blessed are you when you are peacemakers. Um, and I love that idea that Jesus talks about this kind of blessed, distinct, righteous, just, peacemaking, reconciling, holy, virtuous, enemy-loving, generous, praying. And I'm using all the terms that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. This is his vision of this people who, who discover life together as a radical new community. So let me just, just go with one of them, for instance. Jesus talks about an enemy-loving people, and I love that. You know, this idea that we are called, Jesus says, even the heathens love their friends or love people who are like them. But you are called to be a very different people who love your enemies. So Jesus, in effect, says, if you say you love God, then love your sister and brother. If you say you love your sister and brother, then love those who are strangers and who are different than you. If you say you love the stranger and people who are different than you, then love your neighbor. If you say you love your neighbor, then go one more step and love your enemy. So evidence of love for God is found in evidence of love for the stranger, the foreigner or the alien, the person who's different from us, and the person who is our enemy. So this recovering life together in the vision of the Sermon on the Mount is a very radical life together, which I think can really bring healing and renewal to the world. I got a bit excited when I talked about the Sermon on the Mount. So I probably <laughs> no, said too good. much. <laughs> no, I'm glad you did get excited. You know, and as you were speaking, though, it, you know, some of us might be thinking it's so hard to do. It's mm. really hard to love our enemy, let alone love those who are kind of our family or those who are yeah. supposed to be easier to love. So how do we do it, Graham? Like, it is so hard. So, yeah. you, know, I, yeah. I, you know, I carried away because it was so interesting and so important yeah. for us. But how do we actually do it? That's true. And, and, well, um, there's two kinds of people that can be, enemies are a very strong word, but two kinds of people that can be sort of um, our stand in contrast to us and what we care about. Those are people that are distanced from us and the, the people that are close to us. So the people who are distanced from us might be the religious others, so they might be Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu, um, or they might be different from us in terms of their ethnicity and culture. Um, and so one of the ways that we go about loving that person is to, is to look for ways to be peacemakers and bridge builders. So how do I get to know the, the culturally or ethnically or linguistically or religiously or sexually or gendered person who's different than me in my neighbourhood? How do I begin to get to know them and just, just listen to their story? Just listen to what, what, what pains them, what do they desire, what's happening in their life, get to know them, invite them around for a meal. So eat with them, pray for them, listen to them. Um, so that's the first group of people that we can sort of take baby steps to get to know. 
So I'll give you an example. Um, I used to go up to the bus stop up, up the corner uh, um, of the road from me and and um, there were a couple of uh, Iranian young men who would be getting the bus at the same time as me every morning. And I just got to know them. I got to, I talked to them at the bus stop. I got to meet them, you know, on the bus as they were traveling to, uh, to, to their workplace. And one day, one of the Iranian young men said to me, you know what, Graham, you're not at all what I expected Australians to be like. And I said, what did you expect Australians to be like? And he said, well, when I first came to Australia, all of my friends in Iran said to me, oh, be careful of Australians because they're very racist and they don't like Middle Eastern people. He said, but, but you actually just sat with us, you listened to us, and you made me feel like I was loved and welcome. So that's the first group of people, people who are different than us, and we can take baby steps. The second group of people, Grace, and this is often the group that's hardest to love, are people who were once close to us but have offended us in some way or distanced themselves from us. Another way to say that is the hardest enemy to love is the enemy that was once a sister or a brother. Um, you know the person who once worshipped with in the same building as you yeah. or who sat at the table with you and shared a meal? The people that we often feel most aggrieved by, the most animosity towards, are often the people who are once closest to us. It's not coincidental that the Samaritans hated the Jews because they are like their cousins, their brothers and sisters. And so I, I often say to people in the church, you know, sometimes it's easy to love the enemy who's a kind of an abstract enemy. <laughs> It's much harder to love the enemy who once sat at the table with you, who now you are not talking to. And so, you know, what we know is that we often, what, what sort of 12-step programs and other peacemaking programs tell us is that we just need to go to those people and say, how have I wronged you? Please forgive me. And, and take baby steps towards healing and reconciliation. Yeah. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom. It's so wonderful to hear them from you, Graham, because it was so much fun. You know, some some books, it's very torturous to write, but yeah. this was, was so fun to write with you. Uh, you know, we are in different time zones. So, you know, I would send and I would sleep and the next morning you would have edited something. So it worked out really well. So now that our book has been out in the world for a few years and it's doing better than when it first came out, what is your continued hope for the book? I hope it inspires people to explore in their local context, in their local neighbourhood, in their local street, what it means to join with God and with others, to cross borders, to cross boundaries, and to bring healing to a broken and um, world. Well, thank you so much, Graham. I think that's just a wonderful way to close this episode of Madame Podcast. It's been such a joy to um, reconnect with you. We live uh, halfway across the world from each other. Um, it's so wonderful to have you as a guest on Madame to, to share Healing Our Broken Humanity. It's still a book that, you know, 
touches so many people. It has changed so many people's lives mm. and it really changed my life writing the book with you. So I'm so grateful to you, Graham. Thank you, Grace. Thanks for having me. And, and thank you to all your listeners for uh, joining us and for supporting this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Graham. And um, I wish you the best in all your activities. I know you're doing a million other things. I wish you the best. And um, I will hopefully we will see each other in person one day. Yeah, thank you. I hope so. Please join Homebird Christianity's six-week Lenten Exploration of American Saints online class, which begins February 27th. It is an asynchronous class and the weekly streaming will take place on six consecutive Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time from February 27th to April 3rd. This class is hosted by Drs. Trip Fuller and Diana Butler-Bass. The class is free, but donations are most welcome. Please go to www.theonlygodordainedsurvey.com forward slash altars.com to sign up. You don't want to miss this important class. The 37th Pan-Autumn Annual Conference will be held in San Diego First United Methodist Church in California from March 16th to the 18th. The conference will open with a public panel, Echo Justice Rising, on March 16th. Please do attend this important panel. Also, please support this amazing organization by going to www org and donate. Thank you. The Society for Pentecostal Studies welcomes you to their 2023 annual meeting at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, March 16th to the 18th. The annual meeting provides the opportunity for professionals involved in Pentecostalism to share knowledge and new directions in research and practice. Approximately 300 program sessions are convened during the three-day meeting held every spring to provide participation venues and networking outlets for Pentecostal educators and scholars. Please go to sps-usa.org to register for this upcoming annual meeting. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.